Luke chapter 18. We'll begin reading verse 1 through verse 30. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God, shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. For when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with man are possible with God. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time in the age to come eternal life. We want to not press forward in our study. We are actually going to sit still. And that is very unlike me, and you know that. Um, you know I like to just keep moving through God's Word, and, and I uh, enjoy that movement. I uh, want to be thorough, but I think uh, we also need to realize that this was written um, to be read in a single setting, really. And Theophilus, the one to whom the Gospel of Luke was written, the friend of God, uh, the one who is kind of looking and searching and, and wanting some more information and needing some more information, uh, who may not have fully come to Christ, but was a friend and was interested, is the one that we have in mind here, that this would have been uh, a story that was read and uh, an account that, was, that would have... Uh, uh, certainly been gone over many times. And when we break it down into these uh, pieces over now, well over a year, uh, we lose track of the fact that this is a big unit. 
and uh, should be treated that way. And, uh, and so that's why I try to move. Uh, and you might not think I'm trying to move through a book, but I am really trying to keep us moving through a book because I think we, when we break it up too much, we lose track of the major themes. And I've tried to pick up those themes as we've come across them. And uh, it might take me three or four or five weeks to fully work through a single theme because it stretches into some passages. Uh, and uh, we lose track of the fact that the author didn't really intend it that way. He intended that theme to be able to be read and picked up really in a single reading. And so it is now we are dealing with really themes of the entire book that are coming together. We have seen these themes uh, visited and revisited and revisited. Um, and now they are being brought together um, in this really culmination. We're coming into the culmination by the next few chapters of Jesus' teaching ministry. We're going to get into the account of the Passion Week and the end of, of Christ's earthly ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the account. And it's going to become more of the here's what happened. Um, but for the next few chapters, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, we're going to still be in the, the teaching ministry of Christ. And uh, we really pick up in, in chapter 22 where we find uh, the more of the account of here's what's happening and, and what uh, occurs. So we're really coming into uh, the next few months of finishing the teaching ministry of Christ in terms of the Gospel of Luke. As we do so, we want to be reminded of some of those themes and that he is not departing from those themes, but rather he is reworking them and re-communicating them. And, and, and Luke is seeking to do that by means of direct teaching, by parabolic teaching, and by um, the work of Christ, the activity of Christ. And these three are being sewn together for us throughout the Gospel of Luke to uh, build these themes very powerfully. And uh, we can easily lose track of something that may have been taught a year ago in this church. Way back in the early sections of his ministry. And I tried two weeks ago to, to tap that and to go back and say these are not new things that Christ is introducing, but rather he is developing these same themes over and over again and bringing them and furthering them. And so uh, we looked back at the prior passages in Luke, in Luke chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 14, chapter 17 even, where we saw these very themes of Christ, uh, where he uh, developed them in that setting, and now he is further developing them. And the two major themes that we're trying, really three, there's three major themes we're trying to bring together now uh, is the theme certainly of the, what does it mean to be his disciple? And we have, we have revisited this and revisited this over and over again. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? We're going to come into that again, of course, here, because it's going to be uh, put in our face. That what does it mean to really be a person of faith? What does it mean to really be a follower of Jesus Christ? And Jesus Christ has continuously raised the bar. He keeps raising that bar from what everyone else thinks it means. And so the religious community think they have it figured out and that they are showing themselves to be godly people by keeping the law, by keeping religious activity of the feasts, of the, of the sacrifices and all of that. And God has said that's not sufficient. It's inadequate. It's not pleasing to God to do these external activities. I'm interested in things of the heart. He has raised the bar in the idea of righteousness he continues to lift that up and saying that it's, it's more than just, okay, I've kept the Ten Commandments. Um, it's about the heart. And so no longer is about, have you murdered anyone? Oh, I'm clear of that one. The question is, have you hated anyone? The question is no longer, have you committed adultery? But are you lusting? But it's no longer, are you stealing? Or, but but are, or are you coveting? It's a matter, are you content? And so we, we come to this raising of the nature of what righteousness and godliness really is. And we have been challenged that if you don't fulfill this, you cannot be my disciple. He has also brought forward the idea of faithfulness. 
that our idea of faithfulness is not God's idea of faithfulness. And so we think that as long as I am doing, you know, I spend a third of my time for God, that that's okay and God's pleased with that. That's more than my neighbor who spends uh, 5% of his time with, for God. Uh, we do comparative studies between us and our neighbors and us and other church members and us and other Christians and uh, we think we're okay, and God says, oh, no, that's not my measure of faithfulness. I want it all. You give it to me all, or I'll have none. You give me all your attention, or I want none. For this half service is not pleasing my eyes. It's disgusting. If you're neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, what is he going to do? Spit you out. And so he says that if you put your hand to the plow... <laughs> And say, I'm going to do God's work. But all the time, you got your, hand, your, your attention over to the world. He says, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. These are the themes that he has talked about in terms of discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And this, Jesus, and Luke particularly, through the teaching of Jesus, has just powerfully presented. Remember his audience. People who consider themselves friends of God. Those who are kind of interested and, and are uh, curious or, or they're marginally in, uh, committed. And uh, Luke's purpose here is very clear. I want you to be more than just uh, friendly towards God. I want you to be in an intimate, committed relationship with Him. There have been some other themes. He has been throughout Luke introducing on various levels the idea of the necessity of a sacrifice. It has gone back to John the Baptist and the statement that uh, this is the Lamb of God who must take away the sins of the world. Uh, behold Him. Look at Him. Consider Him. And Christ has been consistently introducing the idea that there has to be a sacrifice. That uh, We see that really brought out in Hebrews. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away sin. That there had to be one unique one, one uh, that could be that perfect sacrifice, that could be perfect humanity as well as deity and could provide a sacrifice not only for one man but for all men. And he would be that one. And that's going to be presented in this passage again as well. Uh, the idea of this necessity of who your God is and understanding what is going on. Uh, and so the reception of Jesus Christ as a great prophet, isn't enough. And uh, we encounter people who say, well, I believe Jesus was a great teacher and he taught some great principles that can benefit humanity. Not enough. If that is the extent of your understanding of Jesus Christ, you are under condemnation. That is not enough. And that's what he keeps telling these people. And he's going to tell one of these people today, in this passage, the very thing, same thing. And then he's had another theme, and that is that there's an end to this age. That there is an end to all things. And he has introduced that in many different manners, but uh, he has done it most specifically in chapter 17 where he has just come forward and just said, there will be an end. He has tried to do that in some parabolic teaching to get us to think not of these things around us as eternal. To get us to stop thinking about life in terms of food and raiment and, and, and bank accounts and and. Uh, this life, but we must think of the end of life and the end of all that we understand as existence to come to a conclusion that there will come an end to all things. And the question that Christ keeps presenting to people is, are you ready for that end? Because after that end, you must answer to someone. Are you ready to answer Him? You must answer to your Creator. You must answer to your Savior. You must answer to your Lord. And these themes are coming together, and they're coming together, and, he want, and he's not ignoring any of them. They're coming together very powerfully, and we're going to see it in this passage and in the, in the passages to come. Obviously, we're going to see in verse 31 next week where he takes them aside and says, I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to raise again the third day, verse 33. We're going to study that next week. Appropriate, isn't it? We have a service for, to commemorate that event of Christ's resurrection uh, and the Passover week that is this week, uh, his death. 
And so we have uh, that coming. But then we also are going to have this idea of what discipleship means and about faithfulness. And then we're going to have uh, an example of it uh, given in Zacchaeus we're going to talk about a little bit today. Then we're going to have some more teaching about the end times in chapter 21. So, so Christ is just in a flurry of teaching here. Trying to bring together these themes that he has been harping on almost for three years. He has consistently presented this. This is what real discipleship means. I don't want to just borrow your boat. I just don't want to direct your boat. I want to have your boat. That's what he said to Peter. And so what is real discipleship? What does it really mean to be a person of faith? What is it that God will look for when he comes? What is it that Jesus Christ gave his life for? We have seen these themes now come together, and we want to again address them in this passage. I know we did two weeks ago, but I really want to take it from a little bit different perspective and hopefully see the fullness of this passage that just, I just didn't feel I did justice to it in just one sermon. Before we do that, let's go Lord and pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us. And we pray your spirit might have liberty to now uh, lay hold of us, of our minds, of our hearts, of our lives. Lord, we don't want this to be just an exercise of religious activity. We want this to be powerful movement of your truth amongst us and within us. We need your help for that. No man is up to that task, certainly not me. So I ask for your work here this morning. And in the lives of those that may hear this who aren't here this morning, or hear it through a podcast or through a CD, Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth here today, that you might guard this time from error, from opinion, from uh, the ideas of this world, ideas of a man. They might be your ideas. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the parable of the persistent widow. We really looked at that, and I want to press forward now out of this concept and this question of will the Son of Man, when He comes, will He find, really find faith on the earth? And that has been the question in Luke that we have seen visited time and again. What does it really mean to follow Jesus Christ? And we are going to be introduced today, and I want to take this from the perspective of six individuals. Six people, some who are named and some who are not named, that are both in this text and around this text. And I want you to draw from these six individuals an idea of what is and what is not faith. We will have three examples of true faith, and we will have three examples of false faith. Let it be understood that all six believed in something. Three, true. Three would qualify by this statement of real faith, of the kind of faith that Jesus will be looking for when he comes. Three will fail the faith test. Though all six of these categories of people, these examples, if you will, all six of these, if they were to live today in our society, if they were to live today in our culture, would be sitting in church this morning. Guaranteed. All six of them would be sitting in church today. And yet only three of them will be pleasing to God when He comes. And three of them will be under condemnation when He comes. They are all here in these passages. Three, six examples of individuals. Three negative, three positive and we want to visit them. We find two of them we talked about last week extensively, and one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. One who is a very religious person, and you might look at him and say, well, this is someone that 
um, has got his act together for God. Look at the list. He has never done the really bad sins. He is not unjust in his mind. Oh my, he's not extortioner. He's not an adulterer. And he's certainly not like the tax collector. He fasts twice a week. Um, now, if we were to baptize this into the Baptist doctrine, he has a, we would change that dramatically and say he has a carrion dinner twice a week. I don't know how we got that, but we prefer feasting instead of fasting. Um, and I give tithes of all that I possess. We would look at that as this is a model Christian. This is an example to follow. And Christ says, this is not saving faith. Because he is trusting in himself, he says in verse 9, and those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This man lacked the humility of understanding that um, this kind of activity isn't wrong. This kind of activity is right. But if it's only external and if you are trusting in the activity itself, then we are far from God, even while we claim a knowledge of Him. This is the model church member who is trusting in being the model church member and not humble before God in a right relationship with Him. Does that mean every model church member is of this nature? No. Lord willing, there are some model church members that are model on the inside first with the right kind of faith, and therefore these kinds of things are in their life. But what I want to be careful with this morning is that we do not look at everyone who is modeling Christianity within the church as necessarily right with God. For we have this example. And this example is a frightening one. Because God says, this person left the temple that day thinking he had pleased God, thinking he had done the right things, believing that he was right. And it says he went down not justified, not forgiven, not right with God. He left the temple that day under judgment. Oh, that we would let the weight of that begin to sink into us more and more and more and caution us. Are we doing this thing because we trust in these things? Or are they the overflow of a heart that has humbled itself before God and wants to serve Him? that we are trusting in God and therefore we do these things or are we trusting in doing those things to get right with God? Oh, there's a great difference. A world of difference between these two. Unfortunately, pastors are more than happy to have either of them and both of them in their church. Why? Because the end result is the same, right? Money gets put in the plate. Regular attendance happens. They offer to serve as science school teachers and, and other leadership positions. We're life coaches. And, and so all the positions are filled, all the finances are paid for, and the attendance stays up. And yet Christ says, you have failed if you are not warning those people, if you're trusting in your religious activity, you may be walking away from church every week condemned. Well, that religious activity itself cannot save you. And it's not that we should get rid of the religious activity. The activity should be there, but it should be out of a heart that is humbled and right with God that's trusting fully in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and that this is the overflow of that relationship is in this faithfulness and in this righteousness and in this service. And so we have the self-righteous Pharisee. And we have met many of them. They have engaged Jesus Christ regularly. They are His enemies. And you can be here today as that self-righteous model church member 
and be the enemy of God. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago quite a bit. I want to press on. We talked about the tax collector. Here's a person who's also at the temple. But he's in the temple with a very different uh, concept of himself and of God and of and of, of his activity. He is in the temple, but he's in the temple humbled and he's in the temple um, uh, knowing that he is nowhere near right with God, knowing that there's nothing in himself he can trust in, knowing and he is simply searching, oh God, I want, I'm looking for your forgiveness. That's all I'm looking for. Please, I, I have nothing I can offer you. I, I can only beg. I cannot pay you for it. I cannot... Uh, there, just give me your mercy. And Christ says, this one went home justified. This one went home forgiven. This one left the temple that day with a right relationship with God. And let's give this tax collector a name. Let's call him Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. We're going to meet him, by the way, in the next passage, a few. Next chapter? Is it still in this chapter? Let me see. Next chapter. Chapter 19 starts out with Zacchaeus. Isn't that great how God kind of prophetically introduced Zacchaeus before he actually met Zacchaeus? Maybe Zacchaeus was the tax collector up there beating himself. I'm a sinner and I know it. Please have mercy on me. And by 19, chapter 19, verse 1, Christ walks by and Zacchaeus is ready. Zacchaeus says, come. And what do I have to do? I'm going to do it. You don't even have to... I'm, gonna, I'm right with God and now I want to be right with Him in all my activities. We're going to see... Zacchaeus is that tax collector who humbles himself before God and it shows. And he is going to set things right in his life, not to earn God's favor, but because he has already acquired it, he has been justified, and now he is right with God and it should show in his life. He has come to God not trusting in himself at all, but simply recognizing that he has nothing to offer. And so he can only beg and be the recipient of God's mercy and grace. And so we have the self-righteous Pharisee and the humbled tax collector. And it's the second one who is right with God, not the first. But yet, in our evaluation of church memberships across the country, we would say quite the opposite. We would look at the sinner who is really, um, there's no evidence this tax collector has corrected anything in his life. He, just, he knows he's sinned and, and he just wants God's mercy. He doesn't pray an elaborate prayer. Do you see it? you see how... How elaborate his prayer is. One, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven words in English. Fewer words in Greek, by the way. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't have a fancy prayer. He doesn't know the lingo. He doesn't have it all figured out. He just knows he is a sinner and he can do nothing for himself and he needs God. Simple prayer. And yet, in our circles, we would glorify the fanciful prayer, the disgusting prayer of the Pharisee, instead of the simple prayer of Zacchaeus. You're introduced then into another individual, kind of a group of individuals. We talked about them last week again, and that is children. And we must have this simple, childlike faith. That we must receive Christ and, and without reservation. As a child, trust in his parents without reservation. And this is the kind, Jesus says, this is what is required to enter into the kingdom of God, is to receive like this little child. Not in some philosophical high-mindedness, 
not in some intellectual uh, super ability to grasp this truth, but rather as a small child that we just throw ourselves upon Jesus Christ and trust Him implicitly with all of this life and all the life to come. That we recognize that we cannot feed ourselves and yet we do not worry about it because our Father will feed us. We recognize that we cannot strengthen ourselves yet we do not fret over it because God will strengthen us. Our Father will care for us. And in this manner, this is the kind of faith that God will be looking for. A faith that simply trusts. Simply accepts. Simply receives. So we are called to the child. We have been introduced already into a fourth person. Second shortest verse in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What a contrast Lot's wife is to this simple childlike faith. The simple childlike faith says, I don't have to have all my questions answered. I don't have to have all... I'm just going to trust God that He is a good God. He's going to do what is right and I am going to just throw myself on Him. Just as the child running into the room will just leap upon their into their father's arms uh, with no consideration that the father might be out of balance, with no consideration whether the father is strong enough to catch him, with no consideration that the father is injured from something else or ill, doesn't matter, no consideration that the father might dodge him and make him fall on the ground. No, none of that idea, none of those ideas cross that child's mind. They simply run and... And dad is expected to catch him. And a good dad will. Even if it hurts him. And God always does. Now we have a great contrast. This is simple faith that just blindly says, I'm throwing myself at you because I don't understand it all. I don't have to. I'm just going to accept you. And I'm going to throw myself at you and know that you're going to care for me somehow. Because you said so. Because you are my father. In heaven. But then we have Lot's wife. Who's an interesting study. Remember her. The Bible, Jesus tells you remember her. Back in the last chapter. Lot's wife. What a contrast. To the childlike faith that we saw there. I want to show you what Lot's wife had. She had every reason to believe God. Think about it. She lived with a righteous man. Whatever you want to think about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible's declaration is that he was a righteous man who was vexed in his soul every day by the sin that was around him in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I I just want to share with you, um, in my study this week, uh, I want this to sound... On my travel home on Friday, I think uh, maybe for one of the most one of the most strongest times in my life that this happened, that I was vexed in my soul. I was on my way home, um, not because I was vexed of what I remembered from Haiti. I was vexed by what I was confronted with as soon as I came into this modern world, back into this modern world. That I got on a modern airplane and here a screen drops down right in front of my face and I'm forced, whether I want to or not, to, if I want to keep my eyes open and forward, that I'm forced, forced to watch sin. Forced. There's no choice to turn it off. There's there's no ability to put the screen up. It's there being because the people around me want to watch it. Um, 
you know, they're going to watch it, and so it has to be available for them. And the best I can do is not plug in the earphones, which I didn't have, and so I didn't. Um, but I can't look up without having to deal with that. And how many screens do we use? I mean, it doesn't matter what direction you look at. So I'm forced to either look down, look out, if I don't want to look at the world. And that was just the beginning. And then it just got worse as the day went by. And by the time I got home, I was sick to my stomach from the sin that is our society. And perhaps what concerns me most is that we are more like Lot's wife than Lot. Lot was vexed in his soul by the sin that was around him. And from conversation and from attitudes and at, and from appearance and from everything that was around me, I, I felt dirty from the time I got on that plane in Haiti until I got into my house. Oh, that we'd be vexed in our soul. So, Lot's wife lived with a righteous man. I want you to think about that. She had every reason. She had a godly example in her home, godly leadership in her home. Further, she received angelic visitors for a night. I want you to think about that. She entertained in her home two angels from heaven for the night. She saw the powerful contrast between her righteous husband and these holy angels and the wickedness of Sodom that almost cost them their very daughters. They saw the power of God to blind the wicked men of Sodom so they couldn't find Lot's house. She heard the warning from God. She had it spoken to her. She knew. God's going to destroy this place. You and your family have got to get out of here. Gather everyone you can and get out of here. God is going to destroy this place. She knew the truth. She saw the power of God. She had angelic visitation. She was under the leadership of a godly husband. And she died without faith. She had every opportunity and every earthly reason to trust God. She didn't. Lot's wife is sitting in churches today. They're hearing the word of God. They are having the visitation of God's power all around them. They, they have godly family members. And Lot's wife could be a man or woman in, our, in this setting. They, they have all this privilege. And they have every reason to believe. Every reason to accept it. Every reason to have full intellectual, uh, spiritual, physical assent to this truth that would save them. But they're not saved. See, Lot's wife would be in church today. And she would be lost. And she would leave church today lost. Because she loved the world. And the love of the Father was not in her. And anyone who loves the world cannot be pleasing to God. Oh, that we remember Lot's wife again today. As one of those six examples for us to either be warned of or called to, she's one to be warned of. A little child can simply trust God, don't know all the answers, don't have all that, but I can trust God. I don't have to know the Bible from cover to cover. I just have to humble myself and jump into His arms. And yet here is one who had all this access and was condemned. Oh, that we might be warned today. You trust God as a little child. 
And even if you have all the intellectual opportunity, you'll be condemned if you love the world. Much like Lot's wife, we encountered yet another individual, a certain ruler of the people um, in the religious, in the community of Israel. This would have been someone who also would have been faithful in the temple and in the synagogue. He comes in again, asks a question. We would say the question is right on. This guy is. We would we we would put when they showed up and asked the question, we'd already be putting the notch on our spiritual belt for this conversion. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, your heart starts to beat a little faster. You're like, all right, we're going to have someone get saved right here, right now. And Jesus Christ says, well, are you a sinner? He doesn't ask that question specifically. He asks it in a very different way. He says, well, you kept the law. Essentially, he's asking him, are you a sinner? And the guy and says, no, I'm not a sinner. I kept the law. All right, we got a problem right now. Because this is yet another person who says, oh, yeah, I, this is a person who knew the law, claimed to keep it. All these things I have kept from my youth. And, of course, all of us would like to slap him and say, you're a liar right there. Right? From a youth you've never told a lie. From a youth you've honored your father and your mother. Really? Really? From a youth? I haven't met that youth yet. And if any of my kids ever claim that, you kick them. You said, your dad doesn't say I agree with that. Really? And so really the first question Jesus is asking is, are you a sinner? And the guy doesn't admit to it. I'm a good person. I've been keeping the law. I've been a good person all my life. So Jesus says, okay, well, let's get back down to who's your God. And we talked about this last two weeks ago. Let's talk about who your God is. Yeah, you're a rich man. Give away all your money. Let's see if you're ready to come follow me. By the way, it wasn't just give away your money. If you look at it very carefully, it says sell what you have, distribute to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. So there's added requirement to come follow him. It says he went away sorrowful because he was very rich, and he displayed who his God was. And much like Lot's wife, who had this yearning and longing and this desire after Sodom, instead of after God, who had all this access, she turned and looked, and this man walks away from Jesus Christ because he was trusting his riches. That was his God. We have our fifth person, the rich ruler, trusting in his earthly treasures. He hadn't yet understood that this earth comes to an end and all that you think is yours in your hand will be taken away from you. And then what? You'll have to answer to the judge. You'll have to give an audit. You'll have to answer the audit of God. Are you ready for that? This man wasn't ready. He wasn't even ready to think about an audit of God at the end of the age. He was only interested in thinking of himself. And now we come into the sixth person. And the sixth person, a great contradiction to the rich ruler, was Peter. Peter says, Lord, we've left all to follow you. I remember that day back when you said, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Peter, can I... Captain, your boat? Peter, can I have your boat? Peter remembers that day. He says, you know, I left my boat to follow you. I left it all. Jesus Christ doesn't condemn him for this. He simply says, you know what? You lose anything. You leave whatever you have to leave for the kingdom of God, and you'll receive many times more in this present life and in the age to come, eternal life. And it is that 100% giving of ourselves to God with no false gods in our life.
There have been multiple times over my lifetime that I have been chastised for not being careful with my family. One of those times was when I was moving here from Rio Rancho. I was chastised. I was told, how dare you take a family with small children down into that neighborhood? You're sitting in that neighborhood right now, by the way, just to let you know. That was the reputation of Westgate. This is where gangs and thugs and all kinds of evil stuff happens. And, um, and of course, they're right. But that was the statement. How dare you do that to your young, you have young children. Interesting, I had a similar conversation on the way to Haiti. You're going to Haiti and you don't even have a cell phone. Don't you care about your family? You know Dr. Livingston went to Africa without a cell phone? <laughs> Iron Judson, he went without a cell phone. He went without mail service. They went years without contact with their family. And we consider it irresponsible to go a week. In fact, the Haitians were so concerned about it, they called my family twice, two or three times. I never asked them to. Pastor Perdessen would hand me his phone. He says, it's for you. <laughs> I said, the phone didn't ring. You called somebody. Hello? Dad? <laughs> you see, my kids aren't mine. They belong to the Lord. My life isn't my own. It belongs to the Lord. The safest place I can be is where God wants me to be. And this is the promise that tells us that. Peter says, I've left all to follow you. And Jesus Christ says, excellent, perfect. You will have eternal life and you will be blessed beyond measure. The fact is, most of us function by the world's philosophy driven by fear instead of faith. And we can leave I mean, this is a pretty substantial list. You can leave your house, parents, brothers, wife, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I think one of the things I see in the Christian community today, both in Haiti and here, is this kind of um, worship of the family. That family comes first. And no, it doesn't. If family comes first, that is your God. You are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. God comes first. And I see it in culture after culture, and oh, it is time for us to begin, willing, willingly begin to understand the sacrificial nature of real faith. Real faith says, I will leave it all for Jesus. And it's kind of strange because. We will honor that among our veterans. We will honor that for our military, that they gave the sacrifice. And we are willing to give our sons and daughters up for the military to sacrifice for their country. But somehow, we is broken down in the Christian community that we are not willing to give up our family relations for the kingdom of heaven. And all I can say is, we are not fit for the kingdom of heaven if that is our attitude. I want you to revisit that list. It includes your wife and your children, the most precious relationships. It includes your parents and walking away from them. And I've seen people refusing to serve God on the basis of, I have to take care of my parents. I have to take care of my wife. What about, what about, what about? Well, what about it, folks? Is God still God or is your family your God? We have left all 
and followed you. The testimony of Peter must be our testimony. That we leave it all behind. Our houses, our stuff, our riches, our relationships, all for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because fundamentally, God can not only take care of me, He can take care of my family. Even without a life insurance policy. Just want to throw that one in at you. See, we have so bought into the world's ideas that we would consider, in fact, I hear people, Christians say this, you're irresponsible if you don't have a life insurance policy to cover your family if you die. Really? So that means that all the fathers and husbands for the last thousands of years have been irresponsible because life insurance is a modern device. fact is, we trust the world's philosophies instead of God. Are we prepared to leave all and follow Him? Or are we more like Lot's wife who wants to... We're on our way out. I mean, if you think about that. She was on her way out. She was, she was... All she had to do was walk right behind her husband and she was safe. All she had to do was make it to that next town. And some believers today are that close to heaven. All they have to do is take it to that final step. Just like this man. All he had to do was give it up and follow Jesus Christ. All he had to do was humble himself before just that final step. And that little phrase from Billy Sunday that there's people who are going to fall into hell with their hand on the doorknob of heaven is exactly what is described here. You know the truth. You have every opportunity. You think you've got it worked out, but you're only trusting in yourself and not in God. And oh, that we'd follow the example of Peter. Oh, that we'd follow the example of that little child. Oh, that we'd follow the example of that humbled tax collector. And just just by simple faith, trust in Jesus Christ, giving Him everything we are, trusting Him entirely and not depending upon ourselves or thinking that we're bringing anything to the table, that we would leave all and follow Him. This is the kind of faith Christ asks, am I going to find it when I come? Am I going to find that when I come? Or am I going to find a bunch of Lot's wives? Am I going to find a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees? Am I going to find a bunch of rich Rulers living by the strategies of this world. Oh, that we would be warned today. Follow Jesus. To leave it all behind and say, nothing in my life, nothing in my life, not one person or thing in my life will stand between me and God. I'll trust Him with it all. Oh, we would be like Peter, like the child, and like the tax collector.